if you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. One of the oldest criticisms of Catholicism is that it isn't really Christianity. I heard this in one form or another my whole life. The Catholic Church isn't the Christian Church. Catholics aren't really Christians. Historically, this whole line of attack was started by Protestants during the Reformation. And so they've been holding on to it for 500 years. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast, then you've met my Protestant friend, Ed. He's considering Catholicism, but he's having to overcome this sneaky suspicion that was baked into so many Protestants that if they became Catholics, they'd cease to be Christians. And I'm sure that he's being told and warned by friends and family not to wander away from the Christian faith by falling for all this Catholic mumbo-jumbo. Now, I also know that Ed has sort of worked through this issue, and yet he's still considering Catholicism. But we sat down so that he could come at me with all of the things that he was taught and that he's hearing from so many people around him. And off the top of my head, I did my best to take them on. Maybe if you're hearing these arguments and attacks, these responses will help you. Welcome to Church Chats with Greg and Ed, where Greg and his Protestant friend Ed chat about the church. All right, Ed. So, uh, you know, we've been talking a little bit offline about something that we've both heard our whole life, um, and that is that, you know, this whole line of, uh, I don't want to say attack, but this whole line about how Catholics aren't really Christians or Catholicism isn't really Christianity. I'm just going to say up front that, you know, I heard that in my Protestant days Uh, you know, uh, all of my Protestant days. And even when I was a Protestant pastor, people would come to the church and say, oh my gosh, I was raised Catholic. And, you know, for the first time now, I feel like I'm becoming Christian and it's so great to be in a Christian church and I can get, can I get baptized as a Christian? So, I mean, I've heard this my whole life. I know people, um, I have friends who, when I announced that I was entering the church are deeply disappointed and deeply worried about me. So, you know, and I know that you're getting some of that. You've heard some of that, you know, in your Pentecostal or Baptist days, and you're probably getting a little bit of that from, you know, friends or family or whatever. So, so anyway, let's just like get all this out on the table, dump it out, you know, come at me with uh, both barrels here and and let's see where it goes. I'm going to unload the Protestant sawed off on you. (laughs) You See where it goes. Uh, So I'll say this up front that, that I'm glad to play devil's advocate here and I'll give you what up until maybe uh, four or five years ago would have been what I would say, you know, and I'm, I'm, um, I'm steeped in the Catholic bashing tradition. So, (laughs) so I have all the arguments, you know, um, uh, you know, 
when I was a kid in the Baptist church, it was us and them. So I didn't, I didn't think of them. I thought, well, are they Christians or aren't they? Because look at all the stuff they do. It's not, that's not right, you know, and how can they with a good conscience, you know? Uh, And then as I got older, I thought, well, okay, I'll allow that maybe they're Christians, you know? Uh, So I'll jump in. I made some notes. I knew we were going to talk about this. So I made some notes and I'll give you the, um, I'll just jump right out of the gate and we'll, we'll see what happens here. Um, uh, so here's my, my Protestant take on it. Roman Catholicism looks to me like a giant construct. Okay. It's this, it's this club that uh, is meant to keep people out and, and, and unless they, unless they do like they're told. Okay. It's, um, uh, it, it, the Pope is an example of that construct. Jesus said he'd build his church on this rock, and they took it to mean Peter, and then they, expand, they expanded wildly on that concept until we get what we have today, which, which from a Protestant point of view looks like, well, why would you even go to all that trouble, right? So I don't know if you want to jump in. Um, yeah. Um, so we might as well get, this out of the way Um, because I think it's going to come up over and over and over again in this discussion. Right. And that is the Protestant assumes that Protestantism is the default position of Christianity. Right. Okay. So Protestants start with a, an assumption and it really is what they don't recognize it but they rec- it really is an, an assertion. And the assertion is that Protestantism is not only true, but that it is the default position of Christianity and the original Christianity. And then the narrative goes that originally Christianity was essentially Protestantism. Mm-hmm. And that at some point along the way, Catholics added all of this stuff on top of it. Or that Catholicism, as you just put it, built this giant edifice on top of it until Martin Luther, John Calvin, whoever, came along and removed all of them, like scraping the barnacles off a boat, right? Right. And get it back to what it was supposed to be. And so what happens is, and I'm sure you're going to bring up a number of things here, is one by one by one, they bring up all of these things that are supposedly intrusions, additions, extra things on top of um, Christianity that Catholics have added. Now, let's just say for the sake of argument uh, that Protestantism, you know, is, is true or it could be true, right? I mean, we can have a robust discussion about these issues. Right. But Protestants, and I, I was one, start with this not only just assumption, but as I said, an assertion from an argumentative standpoint, they assert that they're right. Right. And that Catholics have to prove that all of this extra stuff that has been laid up top of the default Protestant Christianity is justified. And that's weird to me. And part of my road to Rome was the realization that I was making a sort of weird assertion. 
Because I think, at least from an argumentative standpoint, it would be just as valid to turn it around and say, are Protestants Christians? Because if I were to say over the last 2,000 years of Christianity, I would say at least not only from a timeline standpoint, for 1,500 of those 2,000 years, there wasn't Protestantism. Right? Right. And and not only that, it wasn't like for fifteen hundred years, five hundred years ago, Protestantism came along and Catholicism ended. Right. But what happened was five hundred years ago, a certain number of Christians departed from the church, right? The universal church and set up Protestantism, but there are still 1.1 or whatever it is, billion Catholics in the world. And that doesn't include all of the Orthodox, right? which in many ways are the original you know, churches of the, the Greek and the Greco-Roman world and all these things. So if you were to look at G.K. Chesterton's Democracy of the Dead, one might say that if one assembled all of the Christians who have ever lived uh, living in who have ever lived, Protestants account for 20 or 30% of them at best right. during a late period in the life of the church in which they reject almost everything that every other Christian uh, has believed or practiced for 2,000 years. And yet their assertion is that they are the default position of Christianity and that everything else is superfluous. Right. So I know that this is a very long answer to your short question. Right. But I I sort of want to lay this foundation because I sort of reject the um, presumption here. Uh, When you say that Catholicism has, has built upon or added things... I say, well, what exactly has been added? It might be more appropriate to say that Protestantism has subtracted right. elements of the faith from the historic Christian faith. My Protestant thinking and my Protestant upbringing was that Christianity was always meant to be just dead simple. And that the Catholics have, 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 have ruined it by taking it, by, by, by coming up with all this stuff. And all I really need to do is believe that I'm saved by Jesus. And then that's it. Right. And here's a, uh, so that's how it felt to me is the difference was, well, why would I go to all that trouble to, to, um, to do a bunch of stuff that I don't need to do because I'm saved by grace. It just seems like a whole bunch of, you know, there's a lot of comfort and safety in reciting the rosary over and over or compulsory church attendance or something, you know, whatever, uh, acts of, uh, of what, what are they called? Penitence or whatever. Um, uh, those things feel good, but they don't contribute to my salvation. So why, why would I bother? Why can't I just walk around and be free? This is what I, uh, this is what I get from my Protestant friends who push back. Let me try an analogy. 
And I'm sure that this is going to be imperfect because all analogies are imperfect. Some right. are more imperfect than others. But let me try an analogy. Let's say that throughout all of human history, people have understood the structure of life to be the extended family and that you understand who you are in relation to your great-grandparents and right. your grandparents and your cousins and, and your aunts and your uncles and the children who come after you and you see yourself or you understand yourself as a human being, that human life is lived in this complexity of, of, of family relationships, clan relationships, tribe relationships, right? And then let's say some people come along and say the 20th century, maybe the 1960s, for example, and they say all of that stuff, all of that stuff about marriages and grandparents and families and cousins and clans and tribes, that's all added on extra stuff because life and humanity is supposed to be simple and free. Like you should be just simple and free to sort of live your life and not be bound by all of these relationships. Right. And who was it who came along and added all of this stuff onto life? Right. Now, most human beings that have lived on the planet Earth in most cultures would look at you as if you were daft. Right. Like, what are you talking about? Well, like, life should just be, you know, you, 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 you live free, you're single, you're not tied down by families and relationships and ancestry. That's not what life is. All of that's added on. And people would go, what are you talking about? The def it's about what the default is. Most people, again, in my analogy... Most people have understood human life and the default for human existence to be the complex web of relationships and family mm -hmm. relationships that we have and complex family structures. And it's only a very small number of people in the West in the last, say, 50, 60 years who have tried to define life um, uh, apart from all of that and assert that human life is supposed to be largely a single solo thing, not defined right. by, by all those, you know, family, clan, tribal, right. you know, relationships. Now here's, you know, I'm obviously making an analogy right? because when you say, uh, well, I think that faith should, my, my Christianity should just be this simple thing. It's just like me and Jesus, and I just believe a few handful of Bible verses, and I accept Jesus into my heart. And, you know, I kind of go to church, and but, you know, it should just be simple and not complex and not everything else. And, and you've added all of this complexity to go... Well, it's a little bit like everybody with the guy with the family thing going, are you daft? Um, this is what Christianity is. It's what Christianity was from the beginning. If you go back and you look at the church from the first generations, I mean, we have documents, you know, about what life in the church was like from the year 100. Right. Um, and a lot of the things that, uh, you know, you would say are extraneous things that have been added on and blah, blah, blah. Those were around in the year 80, 90, 100, 110. So nobody added anything. This, like my analogy about family, this is what... Christianity has always been and has been for the majority of Christians who've ever lived. So the majority of Christians who've ever lived might look at a Protestant asserting all of these things about Protestantism and say, are 
Protestants Christians? You're the ones that are departing from the established norms of the Christian faith as it's been practiced by 70, 80, 90% of Christians who ever lived. Right. Well, this leads directly to uh, one of my... one of my uh, criticisms here, um, that it, and that is that the church was really just people following Jesus until Constantine, at which time they took all the trappings of whatever the current paganism was, and uh, in order to keep the masses happy, they just they just let them keep doing what they were doing. So they made the pagan priests to be Catholic priests instead and told all the pagan worshipers that they had to be Catholic now. And that's what they did. And that's how the Catholic church, you know, started to go really seriously wrong. And, and uh, the Protestants that I know who have read a little about this say, well, yeah, that that's what happened. So I'm so glad you brought this up. I knew that this would inevitably would come because it right. comes up in every conversation. Um, uh, a couple things about that. Um, it's it's a wonderful, concise, um, coherent, cogent narrative that suffers from being completely wrong. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it, it raises a, a, I mean, it's an illustration of one of the problems with arguing about anything. Uh, and that is that it's really easy to make an assertion. I don't care if we're arguing about sports or art or music or politics or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's really easy to make a one or two or three or four sentence assertion about a complex topic. Um, that takes 20 seconds, 30 seconds, rebutting that and proving that it's, that it's not true, that it's kind of, mm-hmm. you know, cow manure, right? It takes 45 minutes. Like right. I could, I could spend the rest of the time in this podcast and the next podcast and the next podcast pointing out how this story about how Christianity looked like evangelical Protestantism until the emperor constant King came along and then created all this stuff. I, I mean, I could spend the next two hours showing you how that's completely wrong, but no one's going to stick with you. Right. And, and right. listen to that, you know, that's that narrative. And so, so let me try to try to address just a couple of highlights mm-hmm. about why it's wrong. First of all, um, uh, it's just simply contradicted by facts. So, uh, for example, if we go back, we know a lot about what Christianity was like in the year 100 and the year 150 and the year 200 and the year 250 and the year 300. There, there were all kinds of the church fathers. And we can go back and read the writings of the church fathers. We can go back and read the histories of the church. We could get on an airplane this afternoon and fly to uh, Italy or Greece or uh, Alex, you know, Alexandria, Egypt. Right. I could take you to those places. We go and they could go to visit historical sites and show that m- many or most of the structures of the of the church were in place uh, for hundreds of years before Constantine. It's true that Constantine removed persecution and he did give some subsidies and built some churches, but most of the structures of the church 
uh, and the practices and doctrines of the church were all intact prior to Constantine. The other thing that that story does is it conflates events that happened sometimes as much as 700 years apart. And let me give you an example. So one of the things that I've heard this line before is that Constantine came along and he created, there needed to be an El Jefe, you know, a boss. And so he created the Bishop of Rome to be his, his, you know, guy that he could control the church through. Mm -hmm. There's at least three things wrong with that. First of all, there was a bishop in Rome who was writing letters, um, sort of, uh, uh, not asserting, well, asserting, uh, claiming uh, the authority of the bishop of Rome as the heir of Peter around the year 100, and his name was Clement. And in fact, the first and second letters of Clement were almost included in the New Testament. Hmm. Clement was the Bishop of Rome and there was a dispute that had arisen in the church in Corinth, the same church that Paul wrote the Corinthian letters to. And Clement wrote some letters, the first and second Clement to the church in Corinth and said, here's, you know, correcting the abuses and things that were taking place there and saying, you know, you know, as the heir of Peter and as the Bishop of Rome, here's this and this and this. So that was taking place 230 years before Constantine. Right. Number two, um, uh, so there already was a bishop of Rome, and there were many bishops of Rome during this period. I mean, we can name them. We can, right. we can go and visit their tombs. Secondly, most of the practices that people like to point out were already in place. Go to Rome and visit the catacombs and see the things that that Christians were practicing. I'm sure we'll get to the whole thing about saints and you right. know and and, right. and masses, and we'll get to the sacramental life of the church. All of that was in place. Constantine recognized it, no doubt about that, and he donated money to build some churches but he was gifting those to a church that was already existent. And here's the third thing about that. This whole thing about how uh, Constantine, you know, created a Roman church that he could control through ignores the fact, two, two important facts. First of all, um, the, the, the Constantine, as soon as, almost as soon as he became Christian, relocated the capital of his empire from Rome to what's now modern-day Istanbul, mm-hmm. which he named Constantinople. Mm-hmm. He named it after himself. He right. built the new capital of the Roman Empire in Constantinople. Right. And the official headquarters of Constantine and the church and all that, and the bishops and everything else were the patriarchs in Constantinople. Rome was something of a backwater. He, you know, he gave, gifted them the, the Lateran Palace, you know, to be a, mm-hmm. a, a place and he built a couple of churches and then he, he skedaddled out of town and built Constantinople over in Turkey. And that's where he ran the empire from. That's where the Council of Nicaea was conducted. So he didn't erect the church in Rome uh, to, to control the empire. He, he gifted a church to the Bishop of Rome and left and set up the church in Constantinople. And that's never part of the narrative. That's, that's the Eastern Orthodox Church. And, and, the, and when I said of conflating events, the church, the church didn't become the Western Church, the Roman Catholic Church, until the year 1054, 700 years, seven centuries after Constantine, the church, which was just the church, right. fractured into the Eastern half and the Western half called the Great Schism. And that's where you had the Church of Rome, the Roman Catholic Church, and the 
Eastern Orthodox Church. And that's never part of this narrative. So, you know, I know they've given a very long answer, and I premised this by saying, you know, you can make a four or five sentence assertion, and it takes me three hours to prove why it's wrong. But that narrative just isn't true at any level. And and I I just challenge it. I I just, I'm going to call, I'm going to call shenanigans on it. That's part of the argument that Catholicism isn't true Christianity, right? I mean, you're, you're debunking it, but that's part of the argument. Well, Constantine invented the Catholic church and then, and then we're off to the races with the whole political thing and, you know, all of that, all the politics and all that. There's so much of this is, it's, it's insane. So uh, a number of years ago, I was in, I was in Rome uh, for a visit and um, I was there with uh, somebody who had read all of the Dan Brown Mm -hmm. Da Vinci Code books and was super into it. Right. And it was a great, great person. Really like this individual. I won't say who it was, but really great person. Uh, but it became super irritating because this friend, as we would go around Rome, kept going, well, where's this from the Da Vinci Code? And where's <laughs> this that Dan Brown talked about? And I kept yeah. going, it doesn't exist. And he said, well, wait a minute. But in the Da Vinci Code, he said, I go, he made it all up. So it just isn't true. And, and, you know, it's, it's interesting. There was a, probably the foremost, uh, philosopher, scholar of philosophy and, and history of philosophy in England in the church of England in the 19th century was a man named, uh, John Henry Newman. And he was a professor at Oxford university and through his study, he converted to Catholicism, lost his job at Oxford, everything else. And He's famous for saying uh, to, to be deep in history is to become Catholic because when you begin to actually read the documents and you study uh, the ancient church, you find that the ancient church essentially was, was Catholic or was the precursor to Catholicism. And that, that, that's just historically true. And I know that people are going to say their pastor told them this, or they watched a video on YouTube, but you know, I mean, I can go on YouTube and find videos that claim all kinds of things, you know, right. I mean, I can go find Sasquatch videos and UFO videos and everything else. I mean, just, you know, I can read stuff about, you know, whatever conspiracy theory, it's just basically a conspiracy theory that was launched primarily um, by the church of England under Henry VIII to discredit Catholicism and justify uh, the establishment of the Church of England. Mm. And it became a, essentially a conspiracy theory that has, that has permeated uh, popular misconceptions ever since. And so I, I'm just going to flatly deny it's true. Another one is that the, um, <clears throat> another sort of slam on it is, on the Catholics, is that um, they don't allow people to interpret the Bible for themselves. They don't, which is a very Protestant thing to do. Um, and all of my life, I have my, my Protestant friends and I was, would, would argue about what a, what a particular passage meant. But we considered that to be a very liberated and Christian thing to do. And that it was, it was just another, another weight to carry around. Um, to have to go with somebody else's uh, interpretation and you couldn't question it. Um, 
it was it was sort of it ended up sort of being a proof in my mind that these people these catholics were um were just trying to keep me down trying to control me you know what i mean it wasn't yeah it wasn't a christian thing to do okay so once again i'm gonna try to swat this one down like a like right. when i'm playing beach volleyball and pretend that i could actually jump high enough to swat the ball right. down but uh okay um three things uh first of all uh it's not true because Catholicism teaches that we can read scripture and we can apply scripture and that the um the faithful with the holy spirit and conscience can can can, can read. I mean, there's all kinds of Catholic traditions about reading scripture in devotional ways and understanding, trying to what it means. But what if you're, if you're talking about authoritatively teaching on doctrine, uh, no, I mean, we don't make up our own doctrines. Um, but that doesn't mean that we can't read scripture and understand it. To the extent that Protestants say, well, that's a problem because I should be able to make up my own doctrines. I wouldn't, I, you know, I wouldn't market that as a feature or benefit <laughs> right. of Protestantism, but sort of a bug or a flaw to say that each person can basically uh, make up doctrinal truths. Um, and three, in practical terms, I don't even think that's true. I mean, I was a Protestant for 25, 30 years. I was a Protestant pastor. I was an ordained pastor as a Bible teacher. I, I, you, know, I, I, you know, I worked in Christian publishing. Um, the, the reality is, is that Protestants defer to Bible teachers all the time. Right. And they have lists of Bible teachers that they go, well, I, you know, I'm going to name names, but right, whether it's historical right. figures like Luther or Calvin or this or that, or it's this megachurch teacher, or it's their denominational standard or their local pastor, they defer to teachers all the time. So how is that in any way practically different than saying that we defer to the teachings of the church and we listen to historical teachings of the church in terms of what is doctrine. And if someone says like, again, it, I, I want the freedom to make up my own, right. invent my own doctrines. I go, well, I mean, again, I, I don't know. That's a selling point. Well, I, okay. Break character here from my, uh, from my uh, devil's advocate. I would say to my friends, well, you know, they would say, well, my, you know, I, I like this church because I like what they're saying. Well, the, my, in my church, yeah. we say that it's this way or that way. Right. Okay. So, right. So this, this immediately leads to the chaos that you have in Protestantism. I mean, a, a topic for another day would be, um, and I've been thinking about doing a, doing a, a podcast episode on this is what exactly is Protestantism anymore? Like, when someone says I'm, I'm a Protestant, I go, other than that the word means not Catholic, right? <laughs> right? What, right? Where do I go to to find out what Protestants believe? Uh, where do I go to? You and I, when we were talking about music with Audrey, and we said, well, what is Protestant music? You go, I, I don't know. Is there, some, is there some book somewhere? Is there some authority right. somewhere? Is there some, you know, guide, set of guidelines? I don't know. It's whatever it is at the church on the corner or in the strip mall. It's wherever I go. That's what it is. If I were to say, tell me what Protestants believe, you go, 
which Protestants. And you used to be able to say, well, the Lutherans or the Calvinists or the Baptists, but now you have to say Pastor Dave in the strip mall church or the guy on TV or this uh, group of four congregations. I have all these Protestant pastor friends that are telling me, and some of them are really mad at me that I converted and I'm doing the Considering Catholicism podcast and they occasionally tell me, you know, you, you're kind of denigrating us and all that. And like me and, and my friends are, are, you know, sturdily standing for the word of God. And I go, you and which friends? Well, there's me and Ralph and Harry and, and -and so-and-so. And they're like the eight of us get together for lunch and we're sturdily standing for that. I go, so it's, it's eight guys who have lunch once a month, right? (laughs) I mean, where, so, so the thing is, is that there's a sort of a chaos. I mean, this is like theological or doctrinal Mad Max. I don't know. Right. I don't know what Protestants believe because there's ten thousand flavors of Protestantism. So, and that's another thing. It's like swatting at a cloud of mosquitoes. I don't. I don't even know right. who you're. You know who you're talking to. The one thing about Catholic Catholicism is you can pull out the Catechism of the Catholic Church. You can go to the teaching of the Church and say, well, at least there is right. a codified. Uh, written down set of doctrinal beliefs. And whereas you go move outside that boundaries and now it's, you know, uh, every man is going to invent it for himself. If I say to a Protestant friend, well, you know, what do you guys believe? Well, we believe this and this and this. And I say, well, yeah, but what about the Episcopalians? They don't believe that, and they're Protestant. Well, yeah, but we're not Episcopalians. Oh, this is see. This, this, see I always love this. Is that, it, it, um, and again, when I say this, like I'm not a cradle Catholic who you know is Protestant. I think I I gave most of my life to being, you know, attended a Protestant seminary, got a Master of Divinity degrees, but most of my right. life working in that world, I gave my life to that. So I feel like I at least have a little bit of skin in the game to talk about this. But when when you say, well, what do the Episcopalians believe or what is this? And they go, well, I don't know. You know, I look at friends of mine. I, well, I won't say the name, but I look at the denomination that I was ordained in. I look at the college or the seminary, the seminary that I graduate from. And, you know... I have all these friends that are like, well, my, their own denomination no longer isn't, excuse me, their own denomination is now in doctrinal chaos. Right. They've got professors at their own seminary that are contradicting um, their denominational teachings. Right. When I was in seminary, uh, when I graduated, our graduation ceremony, there was a protest because half the faculty was protesting some of the doctrinal teachings of our denomination. And so I sat there at my graduation ceremony and they had, they wore these little uh, roses on their lapel or something to try to show that they were protesting the doctrinal standards. So I sat there weirdly at graduation. Going, I don't even know what we believe anymore. I, H- half the people standing in the, uh, you know, on the stage don't even believe th- what I'm being graduated into. I assumed when I was growing up that Protestants all believed basically the same thing. And I took the Bible literally, just literally, okay? The Old Testament literally. And I was so shocked to find that a lot of seminary professors, and it was one particular denomination uh, that I was corresponding or talking to a guy somewhere along the way, and he said, well, look, we know that those Old Testament stories about the flood and about God's creation, those are all fables. We know that. Right. And I thought, well, wait, 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 wait. I just assumed that if you went to a really conservative 
you belonged to a really conservative uh, institution that you would that you would you know. And I found that the deeper they that I that these people went, the less they believed what I assumed they believed. It was, oh yeah, I mean you go you go to you go to the any denom- I mean these denominational seminaries or whatever, and you know half the faculty. No longer, not only believes the the doctrinal standards that are, you know, of the denomination, which are largely in some file somewhere, you know, but they they're they're questioning fundamental teachings of historic Christianity. And you know, here's another quick thing on that. So I have friends, Protestant pastor friends, colleagues. We've known each other for thirty years. You know, we used to work together and everything. Now I'm kind of persona non grata, but. you know, it's funny because every time some wacky Catholic teacher or some wacky priest or something says something, um, they'll go, look, 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 you have all these, you know, crazy teachers. Right. And I'll go, well, we at least have to own them. <laughs> right. But whenever, but I go, do you really want me to go on the internet and find crazy stuff that's being said in Protestant denominations? And whenever I do, they'll go, well, they're not part of us. Right. You know, and, and, and I've got one friend who's like, well, we have an alliance of, you know, like nine of us, <laughs> you know, and it's like right. nine guys who have lunch once a month and you go, we are the, you know, the, the, the remnant, you know, right. the coalition of the remnant. Right. And you go, and anybody who disagrees with us is, is not part of us anymore. Right. And we don't, and we don't have to own them or represent them. So again, you know, uh, the one thing about Catholicism is you, because we do have uh, uh, magisterial teaching, we do have a historic teaching, we own our tradition, and we have um, we, we have doctrines that are codified, i.e., right. the Catholic, you know, the catechism of the Catholic Church or whatever. You, you at least know what it is in a sense that you're buying, right? But most Protestant churches, you're going to get whatever the current pastor decides to teach, right? So, so I'll wind up with my, uh, my big finale here, which <laughs> like at the fireworks <laughs> yeah, where they shoot everything, they, a third yeah, of them yeah, off yeah. at the, you know, last time, um, um, a, a big part of this is saying a big, a, a big knock on Catholicism is that it's, it's not really Christianity. It's a big system that looks like Christianity, but it's in fact an, an empty facade. They claim that it's not by grace alone that you're saved, but through works also reciting prayers over and over compulsory church attendance, etc. It's, it's works based, which is contrary to the plain meaning of scripture. And we Protestants know that all you have to do is believe period. And that any claim other than, than that other than that is not real Christianity. Grace plus anything is is a false religion. Yeah, okay. So I'm gonna go back to my earlier statement that Protestantism, when it goes down this path, is making an unproven assertion, right? It's it asserts that it is correct. Right. It assumes and asserts that that Christianity is whatever flavor of Protestantism the person who's talking has, and that anything that 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 is different than that, i.e., Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, whatever historic Christianity, uh, is somehow extraneous, superfluous, blah 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 blah. Rather than, well, no, you're the one that's departed from historic tradition. But 
But, you know, and I could argue every one of those points, and I'm sure we will, you right. know, in future podcasts, the saving by grace, the works theology, the whole nine yards. I actually want to answer, if this is your your fireworks finale, right. I want to answer it with a, with a story, uh, a bigger story, a personal story. And it's a story that you can probably uh, relate to because you were there. So you and I used to work in uh, at the same church many mm-hmm. years ago. And we had, um, what we used to do at that church is we used to do these extended teaching series on Sunday morning, and we used to teach through books of the Bible. And there was a team of three teaching pastors Mm -hmm. that rotated. I was one of the three and we took turns teaching and the other two, uh, were very Protestant. Okay. Still are. Very Protestant. They've still not really accepted what happened to me. Uh, And we were talking once about what we were going to teach on for the next year. And one of them wanted to do and did do a series on what Protestants call the Romans Road. Now, the Romans Road, it's not what you think it is. It isn't like a road to Rome. It is a sequence of verses from the book of Romans. So you start with this verse in chapter one, and you skip to this verse in chapter two, and this verse in chapter three, and then chapter four. And it skips like through stepping stones across the stream through the book of Romans, and it builds this logical sequence of supposedly what Christianity is teaches. And it's all this salvation by faith alone, no works, whatever. And so it selects about a dozen verses out of the book of Romans. And this other colleague wanted to do like a 12 part sermon series where he skipped through the Romans road and basically, uh, you know, proved Protestantism. And so we went with it because what I had just finished doing during the previous year is teaching through the book of Matthew. And it took about a year to get through it. And you were there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, were, you and I were there together. And what had struck me is I had been teaching on the book of Matthew at that point for the gospel of Matthew for, I don't know, 20 years or something like that. And, but as I went through it verse by verse and taught each week, we went through the Sermon on the Mount, which is in the gospel of Matthew. And I had this like epiphany moment, and it's one of the reasons I'm sitting here today talking to you, you know, on this podcast, because the Protestant assertion was that the starting place for Christianity, the, 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 where you begin the sort of theology of Christianity, you start with the Romans road, you start with these dozen verses in the book of Romans. That's the entry point for Christianity. Mm -hmm. And it occurred to me, why wouldn't the entry point be the Sermon on the Mount? Because I had just taught through the Sermon on the Mount. And I was like, well, wait a minute. Okay, sola scriptura, scripture alone. Well, gospel of Matthew, Paul's letter to the Romans. All right, they're both scripture, but... I mean, seems pretty credible to start with the gospel right. of Matthew. Um, secondly, it described the, the words of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount. And I thought, why wouldn't the Sermon on the Mount be a better place to sort of 
entry point for Christianity than, than a dozen verses sort of cherry-picked out of the, mm-hmm. the Epistle of the Romans. And when I thought about it as we were going through that year and he was teaching on the Romans Road thing, was I thought, depending on where you enter Christianity, sort of conceptually, theologically, like what frames it? What is the sort of framing mm-hmm. mechanism? If you approach Christianity and make your entry portal into it, the Sermon on the Mount, rather than these 12 verses from Romans, it's, it looks really different. Mm. Because the Sermon on the Mount is all about blessed are they who, blessed are they who, right. blessed are they who, and then Jesus goes on and impacts all of these things. And I'm going through them all here and now. Right. But to answer your question that you asked, your finale question about the, the big thing about why does why does Catholicism add all this stuff? It, that's, that's operating from this perspective of all I need are 12 verses from the book of Romans. And then from that, that frames everything else. And I found if I take the words of Jesus and I take that as my starting point, that was the moment when you and I were there at that church, when I got really serious about a converting Catholicism. And I would say that, you know, I'd been studying a long time and I'd traveled and I'd all that. But really, when I started reading Christianity through the starting lens of the Sermon on the Mount, it framed Christianity in a certain way. And how can you say that's not authentic, the words of right. Jesus in the gospel? Right. Um, that all of a sudden, the Catholic worldview made enormous sense. Mm-hmm. It all like snapped into a place like Lego snapping together. And I remember making this point in a private conversation with the other teaching pastor mm-hmm. who's like, you got to start with Romans. It's Romans. It's Romans one, two, three, this verse, this verse, this verse. Everybody knows that's how you frame Christianity. And I'm like, why? Yeah. Why wouldn't I start with a sermon on the Mount? And if I do, I get to, I, I have a very different conceptual landscape. Mm. So again, without d- debating the individual points, I would say a lot of the difference between Catholicism and Protestantism on this point has to do with your starting point, your framing thing. And I would say that the early church started with the words of Jesus in the gospels mm-hmm. and it framed its understanding of faith. Martin Luther comes along in 1517 and reads Romans three and says, oh my gosh, it's all been wrong up until now. Right. And so, in, in other words, what I'm saying is, if you take uh, the the Book of Romans and you put that in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, it all makes sense. Mm-hmm. If you try to take the Book of Romans as your controlling metaphor right, right. and then try to squeeze the words of Jesus into it, you you're led to a very different place. Right. And that that so anyway, you and I were both there. We were both part of that church, and that was like huge sort of epiphany fireworks moment for me. And, you know, then yeah. and that was when the dominoes really started falling in a very serious way. And it was like four years later that I like I resigned right. and, and, uh, and went through RCA and entered the Catholic church. Well, this has been great. I, I, uh, you made a, you, you made a couple of points twice. I mean, one point twice about, about <clears throat> your starting frame of reference and assuming that the, the Protestants, assuming that they're right. And that's, that's a really good thought. That's, 
I, I now I need to go back and uh, read the Sermon on the Mount and then go read Romans and, you know, and then I'll just make it all up what I think. Right. And then I'll just start my own church. <clears throat> there you go. All right. Awesome. Hey, thanks, Ed. Look You're forward welcome. to our next conversation. All, all right. right. Thank you for listening. Considering Catholicism is produced by One Whirling Adventure a 501c3 nonprofit organization with a simple mission, to excite and educate people about historic Catholic Christianity and to equip them to live, share, and defend it in the 21st century. We depend completely on your generous donations. Learn more and consider supporting our ministry by visiting oneworlingadventure.org.